Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Great to have you join us for another uh, session here with uh, This Week in Intelligent Investing. Uh, great to have also Elliot and Phil with me, as always. Uh, guys, welcome. Uh, looking forward to the discussion. Let's get right into it. Uh, Phil, I'll go to you. Great. Thanks, John. So this week, I thought I'd talk about something that's been uh, kind of staring me in the face for the past few weeks or really the past month and a half as I start to write my annual letter. I usually start that in in November, kind of outline it in December and let the inertia build over the holidays until the, you know, the real pedal to the metal time hits, the panic sets in in, in January. So <clears throat> certainly for the past three weeks, I've been doing a lot of staring at the walls, trying to overcome writer's block and, and thinking back to kind of the basic tenets of, of, the big ideas that I'm trying to communicate. And one of them that I always fall back on, of course, is is just the foundational work of psychology. And in this case, you know, what what really struck me is when when you think through Danny Kahneman's system one and system two, it's really quite a bit of similarity to what Howard Marks used to describe or has I, I think he was the first one to describe level one and level two. So for anyone who's not familiar, the the system one framework in psychology is is the instant reactionary, almost gut reaction. You know, he described it as kind of a click, were mental association kind of decision-making framework as compared and contrasted to system two, which is more deliberate and slow and rational. And likewise, Howard Marks described level one thinking as using an example and saying, if, if it's a good company, you buy the stock, right? He described it as very simplistic, very superficial. And that's compared and contrasted against level two, whereby the, the company might be a good company, but in many cases, everybody will recognize it and see it as a good company. And so the stock will be overpriced. So instead of buying the, co- the stock, you'd actually want to sell it. And so as I'm sitting there taking the temperature of what happened in 2020 and what's happening again already this year, it just kind of occurred to me that, that level two and system two thinking seems to be completely dominant right now. And then I paused to make sure that I wasn't making some sort of system one mistake. And if that weren't just some sort of overreactionary gut instinct of my own for whatever reason. So I looked around. And again, I think I've clearly resolved that there is actually not a massive market-wide bubble. I, I think for the simple fact that as you look at the really big, massive tech companies that are leading the, the major indices right now, you know, look, I'm not here to offer a fine-tuned valuation on any of them, but I don't think there's much case to be made that they really stack up amongst history's great bubbles by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, in in almost every case, they're unlevered, producing massive amounts of cash flow at very high rates of return and, and at very high rates of incremental return, and they're still growing like crazy. So it's really hard for me to make the argument that they're massively overvalued. It may be hard to make an argument that they're a real bargain either. But the point remains that I just don't think there's a massive market-wide bubble in that regard. But there really might be, as I look around, if not an all-time high, certainly a generational peak in, in kind of level one thinking where almost every investment thesis seems to be predicated on, you know, X is a good company, so buy the stock. Or X is a company with a very high rate of growth, so buy the stock. Or X is a beneficiary of the pandemic, so buy the stock. So look, for some pros, you know that can be a decent framework for them, frankly. I mean, they may be able to get out ahead of that because the simple fact remains that whether you believe that or not, your thinking does have to be better and different than everybody else's if you're going to make money. Because if you're just riding pure momentum, you know, that can work for a while for sure. I'm not discounting the power of momentum, but I think where people really get killed is confusing an investment thesis with a momentum strategy. And there again, I see just a ton of that right now where people are just very clearly riding the coattails of momentum and not acknowledging it as such. 
So I, I wonder then, has this, have, has enough of the market devolved into the, you know, the so-called Keynesian beauty contest, whereby, you know, the judges aren't trying to find the person who's the most attractive. They're trying to find the person that the other judges will find to be the most attractive. You know, has that, have we tipped over that point or am I just, you know, off base in this and, and things are, are really not that extreme. And again, I mean, Keynesian beauty contests in a lot of ways are natural, right? I mean, they, they happen everywhere. It's, it's particularly prevalent in politics, right? Where, you know, at least in the U.S., I mean, the, the political primary system for a long, long time has been a Keynesian beauty contest where, you know, you try to trot out candidates that will appeal in the Iowa caucus, for example, and, and, and it's, it's really a, a second derivative guessing game in that regard rather than who would appeal at a national level or who would be the best, the best political leader, so again, I, I don't have a strong view, certainly. I would be agnostic, if not worse, for saying that the the whole market has tipped into some sort of total euphoria and mania. If you look at, say, the S&P 500, I don't think the, the merits stack up there. But I do think the more I look around, the more crazy stuff I see at individual securities that point to a really high level of level one thinking and activity out there. So what do you guys think? Is is that accurate or am I overstating it? Yeah, I think calling it level one thinking is exactly right. I do think there's a lot of that going on. I mean, it makes sense that at a certain point, level one thinking was right. But you take anything that's right and stretch it a little too far and then stretch it even further and it gets kind of disanchored from any sort of rational starting point. It's kind of the way Soros describes re- reflexivity in that sense. Um, and I do think, you know, like like you observed, I, I think you're totally right. Market-wide, not so much crazy. But if you look at certain pockets, I mean, EVs, to name one example, uh, there are some just absolutely insane behavior going on. Um, and, you know, it's hard to wrap my head around what this means, both on a broader and a narrower sense. You know, I definitely struggle with, uh, I have one position that I feel like is caught up in a bit of this momentum. I like it. You know, when I look at a couple of years, I don't love it right now. And I don't love the, what I think, uh, average time frame and expected outcome from a typical investor is. Because if people are, you know, hoping for what I think should be like three to five year returns over the next three to five days. <laughs> I mean, that's not very stable a shareholder base. Um, so I'm definitely worried about the interplay of how uh, that kind of behavior translates to, you know, strategy on, on a company level. Um, I also think, you know, one thing that's, that's clear is there is a much greater degree of retail engagement in the stock market than there has been uh, since I've been doing this professionally. And on the one hand, I think that's fantastic. It's really good. I think it's it's good that people are thinking about investing and have taken you know some of what's happened uh, with the rest of their lives and been like, yeah, how could I save more and get more money into the stock market? Hey, that's, that's fantastic. But I, I also think uh, on the other hand, there's this side of things where I, I I feel like part of the fuel behind it is greed and envy more so than pure like rational thinking, and you know when that's the behavior that's driving things that that's definitely not healthy and it's not constructive. Uh, but then you know there still are yeah truly pockets of I'd call it total reasonableness when you think about where the tenure is some of these companies that are growing you know um, free cash flow twenty plus percent have a clear runway to keep doing it, right? I'm thinking the fangs here in particular. Um, you know, when, when they have a reasonable runway to keep doing it, it's not necessarily bad, right? It's it, it's a much better investment than the 10-year uh, treasury because you get a better right. yield that's actually growing right now. Um, and there's some optionality with these businesses. Uh, maybe you could talk about regulatory risk as a downside, of course. Um, uh, there are other sources of downside too. Some of these businesses are more cyclical than they had been before. I'm um, just saying like, you know, thinking out loud, there are some reasons to think that a lot of the market's pretty damn reasonable, but then you find these pockets. You see that the largest stock in the entire Russell 2000 is this company Plug, who was like a sub 500 million market cap last year, who, you know, they have some sales, but my God, uh, you know, trading 100 times sales that who the hell knows what they could actually do for a business. This thing seems to bubble up like once every five years 
um, and it's just in the most extreme fashion right now, that just doesn't make sense to me. And I see some people out there saying like, oh, hey, look, the Russell's finally making up ground on the NASDAQ, but it's because of like a couple handful of stocks like this. It's not exactly like a small cap phenomenon. So yeah, definitely, definitely eyes open to some of the some of the behavior out there. And I think you're you're really right on. Yeah, I think that's it, right? It's it it's not that it's a sign of stupidity necessarily. It's and, and like I said, I it's certainly I share your comments on, you know, whatever you want to call them, the fangs these days. Because like I said, I think they're some of the best businesses we've ever seen. And even on the the regulatory side of things, I mean that part of it just wouldn't necessarily scare me all that much. And again, I don't have a horse in the race directly, so I'm not... Right. I own Google and I pray for a breakup. It would be the most value-creative event we could get. That's what I mean, right? So like, isn't Jeff Bezos just going to spin off Amazon Web Services at some point if it gets to that? And wouldn't that almost be a good thing in some ways? Anyway, (laughs) um, yeah, that part of it doesn't interest me as an argument for, for caution or concern. But, you know, it gets back to this idea that of course, the thought to be having, I guess, at some point in 2020 was, all right, this pandemic's happening, you know, who's going to win and who's going to lose? And so certainly you want to start with who's going to lose. And if you own some of those and hadn't factored that into your decision, then that's where you start. And that's a big issue and a big problem to tackle right away. But the, the flip side was that it was just this kind of reflexive argument of, well, this company's going to benefit, therefore you know, there, there's almost no price that I wouldn't pay. And, and, and I think, you know, again, it's not that there's anything wrong with saying this company's going to benefit from the pandemic. It's this concept that it's easier to get in trouble with a good idea than a bad idea, because you forget that there's a limit to the good idea. And there's definitely a limit to it. I mean, again, it's not that electric vehicles aren't going to be a positive thing for the world and maybe become the dominant transportation form over an internal combustion engine. And then you start seeing every, you know, no revenue startup get valued at tens of billions of dollars. And that's kind of the, the case in point of, of level one thinking, right? And it, it and to your point, I mean, even against, you know, the, the 10-year treasury, even now having finally cracked 1% again, the, the opportunity cost is is quite low. But I just have a really hard time looking at a lot of these companies that are hiding under the disguise of, well, this is good, therefore these companies are a good investment. I just don't see that ever really panning out for a lot of them. And I think as we look at the companies that have been really successful in capitalizing on that environment, right? I mean, people, I think maybe are forgetting how ridiculously hard it is to do what Amazon or Netflix have done. And it's really foolish to assume that you own 10 or 20 more companies that are going to do what Amazon and Netflix have done. So I don't know. John, what do you think? Yeah, I definitely think you're onto something, Phil. I, I, I also think there's a full spectrum of thinking. I'm, I'm not sure some of it should even be called thinking. Um, like <laughs> when Elon Musk uh, tweets, uh, use Signal, and then some company that has signal in its name shoots up like 500% on the day uh, when he was actually <laughs> referring to an app that would that you could use yeah. instead of WhatsApp. Um, <laughs> so that doesn't even get it to level one. Um, and then some people are doing level two thinking, but I feel like there is a lot of level one thinking in the sense that um, we're not necessarily, um, you know, kind of arguing around the metrics that ultimately matter the most, which would be, let's say, free cash flow per share, per diluted share. Um, There are kind of these new age metrics. And as long as you can convince the market that on those metrics, this company is really good, it can just go uh, through the roof. And um, some of those metrics, I mean, they are they can be very important uh, for those kinds of businesses like unit economics, take rate and so forth. And uh, I actually just saw today um, an old article from 2010 by Netflix CEO Reed Hastings basically uh, directing that article at a prominent short seller at a, at the time who was short Netflix stock. And, you know, basically Reed Hastings was saying, um, I like you. I really don't want you to lose money. So here's my argument for why you should not short Netflix. And uh, it was a lot of those um 
metrics that you know are not your traditional metrics, but in the end, um, he was right uh, just because of um, how Netflix executed subsequently and the size of the opportunity they were going after. Um, but I definitely see a lot of um, level one thinking in the sense of this beauty contest, right? Um, people trying to guess which company is going to get added to the S&P 500, or now even which which company is going to be added to the next ARK ETF. Yeah. yeah. Um, but in really what we should be doing is level two, kind of recognizing that um, the markets, it's a pari-mutual betting system in a sense. So you're not just like in horse racing, the best bettors, they don't always bet on the best horse. You bet on the on a combination of the horse and the betting odds. And uh, that's the way it, it should be in the in the stock market. And that's the way it will be over time, um, you know, back to the weighing machine versus voting machine analogy. And, um, you know, for those folks who are stuck in level one thinking, um, they'll learn the lesson. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's just hard when... Uh you look around and see level one thinking being rewarded pretty dramatically. You know, this is, I guess, a lot of our conversations would fall under the caveat emptor classification. And this is just one more of those. But this one um, certainly stands out in my mind. That's actually a halfway decent uh, segue into a question that I know we want to answer before we get on to Elliot's uh, discussion. So we received uh, an inbound question about how to value a company's reinvestment opportunities. So the the listener had sort of framed reinvestment opportunities as falling along a spectrum from discrete to non-discrete. Example of a discrete opportunity would be Chipotle opening up a new lo- new location. So as an investor or an executive, you probably know what the resulting cash on cash return back to the company would be. You can look at other you know new locations and see how they fared. You can look at a pretty well defined industry and. And kind of map that out pretty well. But non-discrete things, you know, the investment isn't necessarily tied to the core operation or doesn't, you know, tie back as easily to identifiable cash generation. Um, he, he mentioned Facebook spending billion on, billions of dollars on its security teams or Apple spending billions on developing its own processors as undoubtedly increasing the value of staying, the value and or staying power of both companies. And, and asked then how we're able to quantify such effects. It's a great question. It's definitely something that I struggle with. I mean, again, to refer back to the prior uh, example that, that I just used about Amazon, I mean, Amazon Web Services is probably something that was never in anyone's initial underwriting of the investment opportunity until probably right up to the moment when it was put into creation. And then it just took on a life of its own. And Amazon's rife with those types of examples. And it points to how powerful and inventive the company is. I mean, they've taken actually four or five different ways of monetizing their own cost line items on the income statement and turned them into new businesses. So maybe that's one way to frame it. Um, But in terms of identifying them in advance and in terms of quantifying them and valuing them as investments, I think it's really, really hard. I mean, I think the best way to identify them is to find the companies that are qualitatively capable of it. And if a company's never done it before, I think it's really hard to say in advance is the company that's about to start doing this. But if it's a company that has at least shown a proclivity for it and theoretically has the capability to pull it off, that's one thing. But I think it sort of just ties into the, you know, the underlying framework of this is a company producing X and I'm willing to pay a value of Y for that stream of cash flows. And if I can get you know, even a discount tax that affords me even more wiggle room for these other projects to fail if they do and, and maybe subtract a little bit of value from X every year. But if they if they happen to hit, then you know, it's sort of all gravy from there. So it's heads I win, tails I don't lose very much kind of analysis. I don't know that I can put a finer, you know, point on that because I think it's just really hard in advance. Uh, Elliot, what do you think? Okay, so first, I mean, I think it's a fantastic question. I want to help color in the spectrum between discrete and non-discrete because, you know, the Chipotle example is definitely, you know, it's it's incredibly apt, right? Chipotle opening up another location versus uh, Facebook adding a new business, new line extension to their business are totally different beasts. 
But in the middle, there's also something like a purely digital business that's investing through its margin in kind of scaling proven unit economics. So I'm thinking a subscription or subscription-like business whose foremost investment is through S&M, which hits them in their margin differently than Chipotle, right? And so I think that's an area where a lot of traditional value investors have had a lot of trouble in approaching growth world, like stripping out the core unit economics and thinking of that S&M as customer acquisition spend. Um, the farther you go down that non-discrete spectrum and you start getting into you know, Facebook buying Oculus and getting into VR uh, or Apple with its own chips, it gets a little more challenging and it's a lot harder and I think what, you know, from my perspective in valuation, I really want that stuff to be optionality because I have no framework that I could truly ascertain what's possible. Though in a lot of great investments, a really big driver of the of the returns. Um, and, and when I'm talking great investments, I'm not talking about something like with a really good IRR over a short time. I'm talking about something that you could hold for decades at a time. A lot of the value decades down is going to come from line extensions that you didn't consider possible at first. Um, but you know, part of that comes to does this company have a proven recipe for taking its position, using it as a platform, and being able to plow into other areas? Um, you know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I'm a shareholder in Google. Google is one of those cases. I mean, you have to think on the one hand, like how do I value it, and then on the other hand, how's the market going to value this too? A company like Google is not going to get benefit of the doubt. But then you look at a company like Spotify, and they make moves in a podcast. They spend the money without having any imminent return and the market rewards them tremendously right away. And so there's some companies where the market kind of like is really keen on buying into the opportunity and other companies like Google where they're punished, right? If you stripped out Google's investments of this kind um, in non-discrete areas and you focused on just the core value of Google, holy cow, that's one of the cheapest stocks in the whole market. But you know, we have to ask ourselves, A, will they ever get a return on some of these investments they've been making. They've been doing this for a long enough time now. Like, where is it? I don't see it yet. And B, you know, uh, if they don't get a return, at what point will they say, well, we're not good at this and we're going to stop and you can factually just earn what the business makes. Um, So it's really hard. I don't think there's one answer. I do think, you know, further defining the spectrum is really helpful. Um, When, when, to me, the, the distinction I'd give is, if I understand the unit economics and could think about how much capital the business could allocate it uh, to scaling proven unit economics, um, then I could think about valuing it. When that's not there, I really insist that it's optionality and I'm not going to pay up for it. And you know, to my detriment, because I haven't been willing to play ball in a company like Spotify, which in theory should be right in my wheelhouse, it's a company that should be very accessible for me to understand, given some of the areas I've invested and you know my experiences with the products and all that sort of stuff. But I just don't want to pay up for those kinds of things. And I'm going to be really disciplined when it comes to that. Yeah. And I, I guess I should answer it too by saying, looking at it upside down and saying, what should we not do? And something that I've seen a lot of recently is, is taking this undefined potential upside and, and not starting with what is known, but starting with what is hoped for and in the in the distant future, right? Saying 10 years from now, this market's going to have grown to some big size and this new entrant, new company, newly acquired thing is going to dominate or even just have a sliver of that market, whatever number they're picking. And then assuming a margin structure and sort of trying to back into what it might be worth that way. I, I think when you start anchoring on those types of numbers that far out, nobody's that good at forecasting and nobody's that good at predicting. I mean, again, this is not venture capital where you're putting in a tiny amount of money and you have an 80 or 90 or 99% chance of failure. But when it hits, you know, you're going to get a 100x payoff, right? I mean, the, there just aren't that many, you know, Amazon's out there to do that in this type of investment framework. So I think it's really difficult, but I do see that an awful lot these days. Maybe I'll just jump in with my uh, two cents before, uh, Elliot, you launch uh, into your uh, topic. Uh, I love the question. I mean, it's it's a really thoughtful question to try to separate out uh, reinvestment opportunities between discrete and non-discrete. And as you said, Elliot, it is a spectrum. Um, I think this is a really good 
question to keep in mind when you hear um, investment theses where they say, um, you know, separate maintenance from growth capex. I feel like sometimes it's not that easy to actually separate these things. Um, and, you know, you want to kind of do it so that you can value some of these fast growing businesses. But I feel like these days, a lot of folks just throw a lot of stuff into growth capex that's not necessarily growth capex. Uh, the more non-discrete you get, the more error uh, possibility there is that you're going to put something into growth capex that's actually needed for maintenance. Um, so that's an, an analogy just uh, to mention that I kind of have thought about in the past. Um, you have this metric of same store sales, right? And everybody just focuses on that metric, same store sales. And I was thinking for, a, let's say, a, a, a company like Starbucks, if you have same store sales growing just because people love the experience and the product and, and they love going to Starbucks, that's that's great. That's much better than if you have same store sales growing because Starbucks just recently launched a new breakfast product. That to me, so you know, launching a breakfast product is super discreet and it's gonna drive your same store sales in the short term. But it, you know, at some point it could be detrimental to the business overall. Like if that breakfast product is English muffins and suddenly everybody's smelling eggs in your store instead of coffee, you may have a problem. And uh, Starbucks did have to kind of uh, reconsider. So it's, it's, I think, just a really, really good question to think about, um, you know, what's, what's discrete, what's non-discrete. And there are no clear answers. Over to you, Elliot. All right, great. Yeah, no, I think those are uh, all really good things to consider. And I think it uh, flows naturally into the topic I wanted to introduce today. Um, I wanted to talk about operating leverage because I think, you know, in this time and age, uh, a lot of people are focused on uh, some of these growth companies who aren't earning money. But once upon a time, you know, we all had a special affinity for companies who could grow and flow a lot of that growth down to incremental margin. And what you're really talking about in a lot of ways is having, you know, some degree of fixed costs in the margin structure and the capacity to earn higher margins per each unit of revenue growth that you're able to deliver on. And I have, I still have this special affinity for companies who are building what are predominantly or, you know, primarily fixed cost business structures and are able to translate that growth into very clean, very high incremental margins. Um, so one of the early podcasts I talked about the company Canby and how you know Canby effectively to cover a universe of bets needs about, you know, call it 2,000 traders uh, to be able to cover a full menu, give a really good experience to people who bet on apps build it, built on the Canby system. Um, but whether they service, you know, with those 2,000 traders, um, you know, 100 customers or 10,000 customers makes no difference for the business. So the incremental margin on growth is really, really big. Uh, the trading desk is a fixed cost for them. So they're out your margins are going to be much higher if they're able to add customers to their platform. Those are kinds of setups I really like to look for. Another example, so yesterday uh, at the Best Ideas Conference, I presented uh, Naked Wines. And Naked Wines has two forms of operating leverage, both of which I think are interesting. Uh, the first, maybe operating leverage is a slight misnomer, but I really think of it that way. Um, their cost to ship a case of wine is fixed. Whether they ship uh, 12 bottles that are priced at $10 a bottle or 12 bottles that are priced at $20 a bottle, it costs them the exact same amount to move that grape in liquid form uh, from their fulfillment centers to your house. And so, you know, if they're able to get people to pay $20 per bottle instead of $10 per bottle by giving them higher quality, uh, the incremental margin per shipment is really high. And they have a second form of operating leverage, which is that they have a lot of fixed costs. Like the, the vast majority of their cost structure is fixed. So obviously it's a variable cost. If you ship one more package, it's going to cost more than shipping, you know, N plus one costs more than N. Um, but in terms of corporate overhead, the cost to develop a site, build uh, relationships with the winemakers, all that sort of stuff, um, those things don't have to scale as a business grows. So when you think about where margins go, 
um, there's a natural tendency to toward uplift. So uh, I think I have three different kinds of operating leverage using examples there. Um, it's something I think about a lot. It's something I look for in businesses. I think it's an underappreciated source of upside. A lot of people focus either on you know, uh, top line or bottom line growth without thinking much like what does this margin structure look like in out years? Um, so, you know, I think it's my favorite kind of all kinds of leverage. It's, you know, obviously something that cuts both ways. So if business isn't growing, operating lar- uh, leverage can be really dangerous. And so obviously in the worst of COVID, when you saw businesses suddenly go to uh, no sales, but you still have this fixed cost structure that you need to support, that's a really dangerous position to be in. Uh, that was a really unique situation. Hopefully, we never get to experience that again in our lifetimes. Um, but that's definitely something you know you have to think about with operating leverage. Uh, that's an extreme example, but it does cut both ways. So you kind of need growth to truly exploit the benefits of it. Um, John, you mentioned same-star sales growth. I think that's a great kind of operating leverage, right? So it costs money to open an incrementally new store, but to kind of uh, get more sales out of each unit is really nice to corporate margins down the line. Uh, So, you know, that's been a nice recipe for some of these large retailers. Um, There's a good study on Home Depot. I forgot exactly where I read it. Um, But when they were kind of new on the scene, um, the thought was that they could never get above a mid to high single digit EBIT margin. Um, And now, don't quote me on this, they're they're definitely at least double that now. They might even be at 20%. Um, but the bigger and bigger and bigger you get uh, when you do have a high degree of fixed costs, there's a lot of incremental margin to be earned. And I think it's, uh, you know, one of the sources of upside in some of these businesses when you think, you know, beyond the typical investor timeframe, which you might call like, I don't know, one year might be too long for right now, but one to two years and you get out to thinking in five to 10 year terms. And I think that's where you could really start experiencing and benefiting from the power of looking at sources of operating leverage. Um, so you guys, I'm wondering, you know, any favorite anecdotes here, um, any perspectives, uh, you know, any, anything, anything else? Yeah, I think my favorite example of it is something we've talked about before, which is just the very most basic, simple, old-fashioned retailer model, which was best exemplified by Costco. I mean, they were able to take some stores that, you know, cost X to build out several million. And it was the average cash break-even on each store was generally in the three to four years range. But then they have stores now that are, you know, 20, 25 years old easily where the operating leverage just flows through every year because they comp up almost every year. Last year, they comped up a lot obviously, but, um, you know, that's just fantastic operating leverage and it's obviously worked wonders for that company. I mean, the thing that I wrote down as you were talking that you got to at the end, of course, was that it cuts both ways. So particularly as I'm looking around right now, I mean, we, we've talked about the airlines. I mean, one of the great drawbacks, uh, in, on the airline business for years and years and years was that it was a very high fixed cost and very low variable cost business that had started to change a little bit before the pandemic. I mean, there were several airlines before the pandemic struck that were 30, 40, 50% variable costs in terms of looking at their overall cost structure, but that's still a lot. And I think you've seen that now. And it's very odd to me when you look at things like not just airlines, but even hotels where you have a very substantial amount of fixed assets in place that have to be utilized and where asset utilization has been the keys to the kingdom, really, in a lot of ways. I mean, is exemplified by Southwest and Ryanair, for sure. And now you look at these sectors. And again, it's not just airlines, it's hotels. It's even things like Live Nation, which hit an all-time record high the other day. But if you look at the forward two-year EBITDA multiple, which again, I'm a as big a EBITDA hater as anybody, but it does have its place. And in this case, the forward two-year EBITDA multiple is now higher in the airline and hotel sector, at least in the U.S., than it was before the pandemic hit over a year ago. So it strikes me as odd that people think that this operating leverage kind of only cuts one way because it's certainly been hurting for the past 10, 11 months, and it just doesn't magically reverse itself because all of these fixed costs that are they're hurting the operating leverage that's hurting as we as we unwind you know it takes time to spool that back up on the rebound so and it's it's very difficult to perfectly match supply and demand i mean that's the beauty if you build one great costco 
you know, you don't have to rebuild it, right? But when you put an airplane into storage or when you lay off your entire staff at a hotel or when, you know, all sorts of bad things happen, it, it's very difficult to just immediately spool that back up. So um, it, it strikes me as dangerous. I mean, there's just a lot of companies out there that seem to have this Lake Wobegon attitude. I mean, every business that's lost customers in the pandemic seems to have the view that it's just a matter of a few more months before they all come immediately back to their pre-2020 behaviors. And all the customers that have been won by companies during the pandemic are assumed to be kept forever. (laughs) And obviously, both of those have big implications when there's operating leverage involved and they can't both be correct. It's really funny that you mentioned Live Nation because it's still up on my screen. I was going to throw it out there as an example of how first level thinking has gone to recovery and reopening place. Um, that it's not just it's amazing, about like, right? yeah, yeah, it's absolutely insane. I mean, I really like before the pandemic, I was researching Live Nation and found some intriguing wrinkles to the story that they were, uh, you know, moving in in a seemingly new direction. Uh, could tell the Pearl Jam story, but I'll skip that for now. Uh, don't want to get too far off track. Um, but yeah, you know, that's just wild to me. But one thing, you know, I, I think you opened up an interesting angle to this all. Um, there are certain costs that are theoretically fixed, but when you enter a storm like COVID, um, fixed becomes uh, variable to an extent at a certain point of utilization. And so, you know, arguably there's some businesses that were able to wring out some fixed costs that they won't have to layer on back. And the incremental margins are going to be better than the past margin structure. And then you take it one step farther and, you know, in industries where there are going to be a decent amount of businesses that have perished um, and there are fewer players left to fulfill what hopefully one to two years from now is at least the same level of demand that existed before the pandemic. You put, you know, the same level of demand over fewer players. That's pretty nice incremental margin too. Uh, would I underwrite to that? God, no, I'm not there. Uh, but it's just an interesting thought experiment. Um, John, I'm curious, uh, any examples you have that come to mind, how, how you think about this as well? Yeah, as, as Phil was talking, I was thinking about the airlines and, and um, you know, why, maybe why that business has really sucked in the past. And I know it was going to get better right before the pandemic. Uh, but as I thought about it, you know, if you take it on a single airplane basis, you cannot really have huge upside leverage because you just can't fit more people on an airplane. And I think the way the models model works with air uh, with airlines is, you know, they got to fill 80 or 90 plus percent just to break even. And so they have a few seats to kind of provide some upside leverage, but they have a lot more seats to provide downside leverage. And when you're in the business where actually um, you can't really blow out the numbers on the upside on a per airplane just basis in terms of filling a, a, that space, but you can have the negative leverage, you're kind of often forced into some really bad business decisions. And maybe that is why that business hasn't been uh, so good. Um, and then, you know, I think about, let's say the short case on Netflix all along has basically been that the cost of content will scale pretty much as quickly or or nearly as quickly as the revenue that was going to come in. And uh, and that was obviously the argument that you were never going to get the, um, the operating leverage. Um, now, Netflix has done really well, and that argument hasn't really held water. But conceptually or intellectually, it's an interesting argument because as you get more competition, um, you are these companies do need to invest more and more into content. So that bar that kind of break-even level in terms of subscriber numbers does go up a lot. And some of them will never hit that break-even level and are going to do very poorly. And a few like Netflix will do really, really well. But that's kind of the the interesting thing about businesses like software or content where you have 90 plus percent incremental margins and you have that huge leverage on on the upside. Um, that implies that you can really invest a ton of money into 
whatever is going to deliver that upside for you. And sometimes um, those decisions are poorly made and there's a lot of money invested and then you don't get the upside and the returns to shareholders are terrible. And I feel like we're going to get that. You know, Right now, none of these companies actually have to deliver that promised land of huge free cash flow. You think of a snowflake. Yeah, at some point they might have huge free cash flow, but they might not. We don't know yet, but they're investing a ton. So, um, you know, that's the danger. And especially in this kind of market where money is free, um, there can be overinvestment, but it remains to be seen uh, how this plays out. Yeah, I think the software example is fascinating. That's another thing that I wrote down because there again, it's just not that expensive to write most software. Obviously, there are exceptions of massive, complicated software projects that take a lot of people and a lot of time and a lot of money, but it still pales in comparison to something like an A380 to you know use your airline example and so in, in the software case you know you ought to be able to recoup your cost at least pretty quickly with most pieces of software if they're going to work at all right i mean a lot of software just fails right away but there again you know it's just not that expensive but if it's going to work at all it should recoup it pretty quickly and then like you said it just doesn't take anything to really roll it out i mean the incremental margins are off the charts and the operating leverage is just fantastic but i mean to your point about an airline. I mean, I think the thing that, that sticks out there, um, yes, there is a, a lot of sensitivity to the downside, as you pointed out. I mean, that goes without saying. But the real problem isn't and, and hasn't historically been um, just that. It's been that there's no real pricing power. So yes, there were problems matching supply and demand in a given market because the assets can be moved around so fluidly. But that's true of a lot of things. I mean, the industry structure, in my opinion, was always just the bigger issue, and this this is what has implications for lots of other things, it's that for many, many decades, I mean, ignore regulation, that was a big problem too, but it was just a sexy industry that attracted too much capital and too many upstarts. And every time there was an opportunity, it got more capacity than it deserved. And so there was just never any real pricing power. I mean, yes, I mean, the way the industry was structured, it was like you described, I mean, you generally had to, the, the break-even load factor was probably below 90%, but at most airlines, it was certainly in the 70s to maybe 80%. That doesn't leave you much room, much wiggle room. Now, if every seat had been an expensive first-class seat, as some airlines had tried, that's a different equation. Or if every seat, you know, had prices that were truly dynamic, that's a different equation. Or if you were able to actually jack prices up, you know, to, to meet the perceived demand for travel, which has proved very durable over many years, many generations, that would have produced a far different outcome. And there was just never any real pricing power there. So to me, that's where pricing power always reigns supreme in any business model. Um, and it's just when, when you don't have pricing power, it often points to really painful downside operating leverage. And where you do have true pricing power, it points to lots and lots of upside leverage. I mean, again, we talked about Netflix. They've created a lot of content. They've created a network. And they probably can raise price, you know, at least in line with inflation, if not two or three times inflation for quite a while without running into a real problem. Now, if they get to $30 a month and their competitors are willing to do it at five or six or $10 a month because there's just so much capacity and capital chasing that opportunity, then that's going to be a different equation. But we're not anywhere close to that for right now. Um, and then one other thing that Elliot brought up, which is a great one, and this is something I don't know empirically as to what the the data would show, but I do wonder if operating leverage has become either more extreme or more favorable over time. I mean, I was just looking at something when the results from Union Pacific came out, and they've obviously been doing reasonably well as a railroad for, for many years now, as, as several railroads have, but they've actually taken out tens of thousands of full-time employees just in the past handful of years, despite shipping more and more you know, freight, more and more ton miles of cargo uh, almost every single year. So to your point about the pandemic and, and taking costs out and that kind of coiled spring for, for operating leverage in the future, that's that's a great point. And then there are other examples of just sort of structural um, improvements, I guess would be the word, because when you're able to take fi fixed costs out and still have the ability to capture that variable demand, that's usually a pretty powerful thing. Yeah, so a lot of interesting things here. First off, you guys mentioned airlines, hotels, 
and Netflix, all of which got me thinking about one form of operating leverage that went awry for uh, people in the related fields. Um, when you think about the OTAs and what they did for hotels and airlines to an extent, and when you think about the allure of Netflix for content companies in the early days, it's like, well, you know, we push our normal channels and we'll sell any excess capacity, uh, or in the content company's case, we'll just, you know, give this to Netflix and take the money because it's pure incremental margin. So let's do it. And then suddenly these businesses end up owning your customer. So the allure of operating leverage can lead you astray uh, in a strategic sense. That was kind of a disaster for each of those respective industries. Um, and they've tried to figure out ways to recapture that. Um, so, you know, on the one hand, um, don't fall for the easy money in that sense. If you own the customer relationship and your operating leverage comes from scaling unit economics, that's very different than, uh, you know, other forms of it or other ways to tap into it. But, you know, it does, it is worth always asking the question, if I have an asset with a fixed cost, like how else um, can I monetize this existing asset? What other ways could I take something that's underutilized and make it happen. Uh, the food delivery also comes to mind, right? Like Grubhub promised incrementality to restaurants, but it became a disaster for restaurants once it went past mere incrementality and started cannibalizing primary channels. Um, not wholeheartedly for all restaurants was a disaster, but at least enough that it led to a very public vocal uh, problem. Um, <clears throat> as for the situation of like taking costs out of businesses, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things that I'm kind of keen on uh, because I've been involved in Cognex for some time, is a lot of companies had talked about labor as one of the foremost bottlenecks to, um, you know, access to cheap labor being a reason to not invest in certain kinds of automation. When you mentioned Union Pacific, I think, wow, well, if they've taken that many employees out over the years, I don't know the business quite well enough, but if they've taken out that many employees uh, and yet they're still moving the same amount of goods, they're obviously, you know, they're, they're, they've been investing in things that, make their whole business more efficient. Um, so, you know, as labor costs get more expensive or as it gets more challenging to get people in close proximity, there's an excuse to take what's a regular expense and make it a capital good uh, in, in buying automation that'll have, you know, depending on what you're doing, uh, some lifespan that has a really good ROI and payback. And the in incremental margin is really, really big. Uh, so there are all different ways to kind of tap into this. And I do think we've seen kind of like an acceleration in the investment in automation, especially as demands sh shifted from some of these like more uh, labor intensive uh, in-person channels to e-commerce in general, where you're you're afforded that opportunity. And so I, when, when Chris brought up Nike uh, many podcasts ago, you know, that was one of the things I'm thinking about as they move online, uh, they are investing in more automation their business is getting more efficient, they're able to do the same with a lot less involved in there. Um, so that's another way to get at it. And yeah, I kind of feel like in certain cases, there is this springed coil, but it's also another force that will pull more demand into the winner's channels. So the winners keep winning more. And that too is its own force of, uh, has its own interplay with margin. You know, Elliot, um, I wonder, what you think of the interplay here between some of what we've talked about and that idea of yours, which I love, of, uh, did you call it overlapping TAMs or <laughs> some, something along those lines? Yep, yep, exactly. Which basically, to me, you know, if you think about it, so all these companies say they have this huge addressable market, and that justifies them investing a ton of money up front because when they finally get a good market share of that addressable market, the operating leverage will <laughs> kick in and they'll be super profitable. But if you consider that these might be overlapping TAMs, it kind of suggests some of these folks may not ever get there. Totally. I think that's a big problem. I think that's part of where Twitter went astray in the early years. You know, They're like, look at us, we're going to be the next Facebook. They built this huge cost structure and then the revenues never came to the extent that they wanted. And it's taken years to kind of reset everything foundationally. Um, so yeah, I think that's a really big problem. There are a lot of these industries I see out there where these companies will throw up these big gaudy TAMs and they're like, yeah, we're gonna capture so-and-so percent of it. 
Um, but then, you know, the company next door is saying the exact same thing and the company next door to them is saying the same thing. And it's like, well, you can't all get it, um, but you are all building a cost structure to go get, try for it. Um, so, you, you know, I, I 100%, I think that's a really big problem. I think uh, that's a big part of why I like being able to see the operating leverage as opposed to like just imagine it, right? You know, there are companies that do demonstrate and deliver it. Uh, one of the things that like, you know, a lot of people have said to me, oh, Roku, blah, blah, blah. They might never make money. They're they're going for break even. But hey, when you have a company that's trying to not make money and they end up with a low double digit EBITDA margin, you can be pretty damn confident that there is some margin in the business when they say like, yeah, today's the day we're actually here and want to make money. Um, there was one company I've been working on. I'm not going to call them out by name. Um, it was about two years ago, maybe a year and a half ago. And, you know, they had said quite candidly, you know, we're going for margin right now, but if the street demands that we start, sorry, we're going for growth right now, but if the street demands that we start going for margin, then we'll start doing it. And you start asking them questions to dig into like how they think about margin. And they are one of these companies that's talking about a huge TAM. And so their margin conversation goes back to, so when we capture this amount of TAM, it's like, sorry, circular reference, model broken. I don't understand what the hell you're saying. <laughs> so yeah, it's a big problem. So I'll just mention uh, Amazon. We haven't even mentioned it this whole discussion, but I think it's a great example, right, of, of a company that has a ton of operating leverage and making that choice to actually reinvest. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, the value creation there has been evident. Great. Well, Phil, did you want to jump in or? I think that pretty well covered it for me. Cool. Okay. Well, guys, this was another uh, great discussion. I'm glad we got to address that uh, listener question as well. Thanks. Uh, and uh, talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.